0: Thank you, Rob. That's great. Actually, there's one, just one more announcement that I wanted to make, which is about a Getting Connected course that we're running this week and next week. Um, that's for anyone who is new to the church who would like to know more about how the church works or anyone who's been here for years and has never actually gone through the Getting Connected course. It's for you too. That's two sessions, really simple, encouraging. We get to share stories about our own lives, share stories about church, you get to ask anything you like about how church works and why things are the way they are and how they work and, and how you can find a place serving God here amongst this wonderful group of people. So that's this coming Tuesday, Tuesday night. Uh, we'll be here at the center if you want to know more about that or you'd like to come along, uh, see Judith, myself or Catherine who's just spoken and we'd love to talk to you more about that. Right, wonderful. Can we have the first slide up, please? There we go. This is a picture of the board game, the, board, the Game of Life. And I don't know if you've got um, games in a cupboard at home. We've got stacker games in several cupboards at home, several board games. And uh, they come out from time to time, usually holiday times. They get sort of a bit of an airing. We dust them off. We took a few away this, a few weeks ago, we were away for a week, and we took a few games with us. Yahtzee and Articulate, and, and of course, the old favorite, Monopoly. Uh, Monopoly has to go with us everywhere. We do, actually, as a family, we quite enjoy a game of Monopoly. I don't know about you. Anybody else enjoy a game like that? But uh, we do. Okay, yeah. Well, we, it's one of those games that can get a bit frustrating, but for us it's a bit of a leveler. So we can't, we can't play word games because Judith thrashes us at those. Um, so Scrabbles ruled out and all those sort of things because you have to be clever for those. So Monopoly, you just have to shake some dice and go around a board. That's fine. Um, and, and, of course, Judith thrashed us at it. Um, this time on holiday, again. But one, one important thing for all of us is that we, for us as a family, is that before we start a game, we check the rules. And I don't mean you read the rules, because we know the rules of most of the games. Some of them we've not played for years. You have to kind of dust them off and just check that you vaguely know what's going on. But even with Monopoly, a game we know really well, we check the rules we're going to play when we start. And that's because often you find with board games that have been around for a while, you you kind of have variations to the rules that you're allowed to play. So for us, it's free parking. If you ever played Monopoly, there's a square in the corner called free parking. And if you land on some others, you have to pay some bills. And we decided, as many of you do, that if all the money from the bills goes in the middle. And if you land on free parking, you get all the money that's in the middle. Okay? So it's, it's, it's okay. It just it shortens the game by about three days. That's all. So it means that we can get through a game in a couple of hours rather than it taking days. And days, and we quite enjoy that. But that's kind of that's how it works. And 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 our family, we we do play fair. We we keep to the rules once we set. There's no cheating going on. But it's a tough game. Um, We're competitive, but we like to keep by the rules that we've set. And uh, and I'm starting with all that because I I think that many of us in life are like that, that we kind of feel that life's got a set of rules and. Uh, We've got our own version of them. We're playing life by our rules, and and kind of it feels all right. We're trying to work out, we go go through the kind of early years of our life, working out how life should work, and we have an intuitive sense of how we're meant to play, and that's how we approach life. And I want to look at that today, because I think life doesn't always play by the rules. And sometimes that leaves us feeling cheated and feeling unfair, because we've approached the circumstances of our life playing by what we feel are the rules. It's as if we've agreed the deal with God or with the world or something, and we've, we've gone, okay, this is how I'm going to play, and then life just doesn't quite work sometimes for us. And I want to talk into this today. And to help us, I'm going to tell a story of a guy called Hezekiah, a man from the Old Testament who's a goody. He a, he's a, becomes a king of part of God's people, Uh, Rob was talking earlier about the Jewish people, and obviously they were based mainly in this nation of Israel in the Old Testament. I'm doing this to kind of show the kind of extent of the nation, more like that, I guess. Um, But there was 12 tribes of Israel that settled in this land, uh, 10 of which colonized the northern part, largely, and then two were in the south, the tribes of Judah. And Hezekiah becomes king of the tribes of Judah. After there's a division in the country and the the two nations, Israel and Judah, split. So he's the king of Judah. He's a good king. He's a good guy. He shows us how to follow God and how to play by the rules. And he's really the kind of an example, if you like, of the Old Testament pattern that if you follow God, things go well, and if you don't follow God, things don't go well. He's a representative of that way of thinking and that teaching that we often see going throughout the Old Testament. and We encounter him in 2 Chronicles 29, verses 1 and 2, and it says this, Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. It goes on to say, the bit I've missed off there, just because it didn't fit, his mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Now, I just want to explain, David wasn't his father. It's not that the Bible's made a mistake, but this is a Hebrew way of talking about your ancestors. So what it's saying is Hezekiah is following in the line of David. I know that's true, because the verse before tells us that he was son of Ahaz, and the beginning of Ahaz's story tells us that Ahaz was a son of David, and he wasn't a son of David either. So we kind of got this, that Hezekiah's dad wasn't David, and Ahaz's dad wasn't David, but they're both called sons of David, because they're following after David the king. You might think that's incidental, but when you're thinking of the Hebrew genealogies, that's actually quite important. When the Bible's saying son of, son of, son of, son of, and you go, whoa, what, what's happening? And the dates seem a bit funny. Well, maybe, just possibly. Sometimes there's this pattern going on where it's talking about antecedents rather than actual descendants. So anyway, something to throw out there. So Hezekiah is a good king. He's not perfect, but he's a good guy. And to get the Bible saying about you that you did what was right in the eyes of the Lord is pretty cool. That's pretty good. At the end of his life, there's like, or oh, so no, not the end, so halfway through, there's a kind of progress report of his service that's going on. It says this in 2 Chronicles 31. In everything that he undertook in the service of God's temple and in obedience to the law and his commands, he sought his God and worked wholeheartedly, and so he prospered. That's great. Any king of Judah would love to have that written about them, that they've, they've sought God, they've done what God wanted, and, and as a result, God has prospered them. There's nothing more you could ask for your nation for you as a king. All is going as it should. Hezekiah, when it comes to the game of being Judah's king, is playing by the rules. And it's working. And then, I was reading this just a few weeks ago, and then noticed that actually something quite unfair seemed to happen next. This is what you read in the next chapter, the very next verse. And after all Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. Now, how many of you know life's not meant to work like that? If you play by the rules and you're prospering under God, it's meant to go, okay, that's the deal you set out on. That's the kind of deal that we approach life with often, where we say, okay, God, I'm going to follow you. I'll pray a bit. You'll provide a bit. We'll be okay. If I want some more stuff sorting out, I'll pray more. You'll do more, and we'll be fine. And that's the deal. If I obey you, life goes well. Yet, we find that life doesn't play by the rules. Now, what can we do about this? How do we respond? I've got a few practical snippets, some thoughts to help us with this today. Number one, stop playing the blame game. It's my number one tip, I believe is from the scripture, of what we should do when life doesn't play by the rules. You see, I think we often look for someone to hold responsible. It feels like somebody should be responsible for the mess I'm in right now. It's got to be somebody's fault, so I'm going to look for who it is. And I want to just encourage you today to stop if you're doing that. If actually there's been either a repeating record that's gone on in your uh, repeating kind of soundtrack almost to life that's gone on and you've you've said, well, I'm in this position because of such this that happened, I want to encourage you just to stop today because I'm not sure that's actually terribly helpful for moving us forward. Do you want to be more specific than that today? Because I believe as I was preparing this, I needed to say this to some people here. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. The situation you're in right now is not your fault. And it's time to stop playing the blame game of working out why you ended up where you were and what mistakes you made I just need to say today, to some people, it's not your fault. Some have been looking back and saying, if only, if only, if only, and regret isn't the answer. For some, hear me carefully on this, for some people, seeking God for forgiveness is not the answer either. Because if it wasn't your fault, if this particular circumstance you're in wasn't your fault, then there's nothing to ask forgiveness for about that particular thing. I'm not saying repentance isn't worth doing and asking God for forgiveness daily isn't worth doing. But when it comes to rehashing and trying to redo the past, for some people here, believe God would say to you, it's not your fault. Jesus healed many people. One particular person, as he was going along, became apparent to him. And this is from John's Gospel. So it's talking about Jesus. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They're playing the blame game. Whose fault is it? Jesus says it wasn't this man's fault. Now, you might think this is bizarre when you actually read this passage because he was born blind. So how can it be his fault that he was born blind? Because up until being born, he hadn't done a great deal. But there's a thought in Jewish teaching, some of Jewish teaching, that perhaps you can sin even before you're born. And so somehow this man had somehow offended God or done something wrong. And so as a result of his own sin, he'd been born blind. Or perhaps the thinking goes, it's a result of his parents' sin, and we'll come to that in just a moment. But Jesus says, no, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This man did not sin to cause this. Jesus isn't saying this man has never sinned. He's not denying that sin exists or that we're not all sinners in need of repentance and needing to come to God. That's not his point. He's saying that this man's own sin didn't cause his blindness. Secondly, it's not your background's fault. Some of us are in particular situations that we're looking at and we're saying, I wouldn't be here today unless... This and this and this and this hadn't happened. It's all the fault of that. And I'm not denying causality. I'm not, I'm not doing anything like that. But I'm just saying, I'm trying to help us not to play the blame game. And to look ahead rather than looking back right now. You see, Jesus says about this man's parents that they didn't sin either. Again, he's not declaring that they're perfect. But he's saying that their sin was not the cause of this man's circumstances. And, and it's helpful to go back to Hezekiah, our king our Judaic good king who's playing by the rules. You see, Hezekiah came from a rough background. Let me just show you. This is his dad. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, as we know, who wasn't his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and also made idols for worshipping the bulls. Now, the rough pattern of the Old Testament period after the nation of Israel had divided was that the northern kings were bad and the southern kings were good. It's not quite that simple, but that's the rough pattern. And Ahaz, a king in the south, is following the pattern of the north of Israel. And he's following their ways and worshipping foreign gods. And you might think, well, that's not too bad. Maybe God's just being a bit picky. He, you know, it's just, God's very fussy and, Worried about people worshipping other gods. Well, let me just show you. This is what it means to worship other gods. If ever you're worried about what it might mean to worship the bulls and why God acts the way he does in part of the Old Testament, this is what it means. He burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and sacrificed his children in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places, on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. We know that one of his children survived because he becomes the next king, but Ahaz is actually killing off his own kids in sacrifice to these false gods. And when we see the nation of Israel coming in to take over the land that God has promised them, they're actually enacting the judgment that God would bring. It's like a an eschatological judgment, it's the end times. He's, he's, they're enacting the works of God at that moment because the people who are in those lands have had their opportunity to live God's way, to live right, and yet they're full of corruption and child sacrifice and, and practices which are just abhorrent. They're killing each other and, and there's these horrible, horrible things going on. And this is the man who should be the king. This is the guy. And, and yet despite... His awful leadership, God never lets the people go. He never lets go of them. Ahaz's last act is to take all the furnishings out of God's temple. To take them out of there. His last act is to cut up those furnishings, to shut the door of the temple, and to set up altars to these false gods on every street corner in the cities. He makes idolatry accessible. No longer do people have to go to a temple to worship the true God, but they can worship false gods on every street corner, thanks to this man. That's Hezekiah's background. That's the story he had behind, behind the story of his life. And when he arrived to take over his kingship, that was his, the legacy that he had been left, his inheritance. Now, I don't know how on earth he coped. But the story goes that Hezekiah, following after Ahaz, his father, in the first month of the first year of his reign, he opens the door of the temple. He repairs them. He brings in priests and Levites and he tells them what to do and he consecrates them to God's service. They remove all the defilements and he says this, Our parents were unfaithful. They turned their faces away they shut the doors and he's encouraging them and he says this, now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his anger might turn away from us. Do not be negligent for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him and serve him, to minister before him. So Hezekiah just undoes all the stuff that his father's done. He sets things right despite the inheritance he's had. And yet, Despite all that, it wasn't his father's fault that the king of Assyria came and invaded. Do you see that? Hezekiah lives right, his father lives badly, but Hezek- it wasn't Hezekiah's dad's fault that the bad king comes to invade. It wasn't. For Hezekiah, it wasn't his dad's fault that there's a problem. It wasn't his fault, it wasn't his background's fault. He was just stuck with this opposition king coming to invade his land. And he needed to stop, needed to not play the blame game. Finally, it wasn't God's fault. You see, when we ask, why is this stuff happening? Why is it happening? It's, It's not my fault. Okay, it's not my background's fault. It must be God's fault. That's really not helpful. When tough times come, and they do, we mustn't assume that our feelings are true. Sometimes we feel that God's dropped the ball, that God's just lost sight of where we are. That Somehow he he either does know and doesn't care, or he just doesn't know. And that isn't true. Maybe you've done everything right, and yet things still went wrong. Maybe you've been generous with your finances, and yet other people still seem to be more blessed than you. Maybe you've worked hard and yet your finances are still tight. Maybe no matter what you've tried, your relationships still don't work out. Maybe you're sick again and you thought you'd got it sorted out and something's happened. Hezekiah's Judah was attacked and it wasn't his fault. And it wasn't his father's fault and it wasn't God's fault. God had not brought judgment on them as he does sometimes elsewhere. On this occasion, the simple reason was that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, had decided to invade. That was why there was a problem, because someone had made a decision to do something, and it impacted someone else's life. I want to encourage us? If you found yourself going, well, if it's not my fault, and it's not my background's fault, it must be God's fault, or it must be somebody's fault, just encourage you to Pause. Because I think the question isn't, whose fault is it? It's, what do we do next? This is what I want to encourage us to do. We need to redefine our relationship with God. You see, the danger of playing the blame game is that we create a vending machine, God. At school, secondary school, I remember a vending machine, particularly fondly. I used to visit it most days. The vending machine dispensed hot drinks. I had a particular type of coffee. I think it was number 35, the combination. I could be wrong. It could be 52. I wasn't quite sure. So it's one of those two. But that was my combination for the coffee I used to have on a regular basis. And it was quite a simple thing if we put the money in and the coffee came out in a little pot. And you drank it and you put the pot in the bin. That was the deal. And if it didn't work... The arrangement was, or if your money got stuck, the arrangement was that you went just down the corridor and spoke to the school secretary who would sort it out for you. That was always if kicking it didn't work first. But if, you know, if the drink didn't come out, your money didn't come back, you go and see to the school secretary. Somebody looking worried, kicking the machine, not the secretary. You go and see the secretary and she'd come and sort it out for me, and that would be fine. That was the relationship I had with the vending machine. I've not thought about that vending machine ever since, until this sermon. I don't have a particularly emotional attachment to the vending machine. It, it dispensed coffee for me when I wanted coffee. That was the deal. That was the limit of the deal. And if occasionally I fancied a hot chocolate, I could get a hot chocolate from it. That was, that was it. There's no emotional relationship, no attachment, no nothing. And, and I wonder if sometimes we're we in danger of swapping the kind of relationship that God calls us to have, that he beckons us into with quite a transactional relationship with God. Where, where we do the things equivalent to putting the money in the machine and we're holding the cup waiting. We're waiting for the cup to fall and we're going, well, I've, I've prayed. Well, I'll read my Bible a bit more. And, and we just keep in doing stuff as if God is some kind of intergalactic vending machine, which if only we can get the right combination of stuff to put in will get what we want out of it. And I don't think that's the relationship God's called us into. I don't think God's called us to, to come to some heavenly vendor where, where we do the right combination of things in the right order and we always get what we want at the end. And we get really frustrated if we don't get what we want because after all, we've put the right stuff in. And I know in my own life, there's been times when I haven't received the things I thought I ought to have. And it's easy to track back and go, but I did this and this and this and this and this. I played my part. God, what happened? And that's not a symptom that something's, gone, a sign that something's gone wrong with God. It's a sign that something's gone wrong with my relationship with God. Because we're never called to have that kind of transactional relationship. We're called to come to Jesus and have a new life. As Catherine was talking about, those young people discovering that there's one who called them, who delights in them, who saved them who's rescued them and can give them hope. That through whatever they walk through in life, God will be with them. Well, we might be saying, Stuart, if you're right, and if God isn't some kind of heavenly vending machine, what's the point of living right then? Why, why would I want to get all, my, all the coins lined up? Why would I want to pray? Why would I want to read the Bible? Why would I want to go to church? Why do I want to give my money away? I could just keep it for myself. Why would I want to serve people? Why would I want to be kind and compassionate and listen to people when they're talking to me? I can just ignore them now, can't I? Because if God isn't going to play by my rules, why should I play by what I think his are? I think we're missing the point. See, living for God is not about us getting what we want now. As if, If only I give a bit of obedience and a bit of self-denial, God will rearrange the entire universe just for me. And he'll give me just what I want right now. As a result of my little bit of self-denial. God's agenda is a bit bigger than ours. But he doesn't dismiss our needs. He's not intolerant of them. He's not discompassionate. He cares intimately about every circumstance you're going through. About you in the middle of whatever you're walking through right now. And he's big enough to cope and he's big enough to meet you and he's big enough to help. God calls us not to follow Jesus so that we can have better bargaining power with God but to have a meaningful relationship with him. To live a life based on faith that looks at whatever's around and then lifts our eyes to the king and says, God, I thank you that you saved me. I thank you that this is not the end of my story. Even if I die right now, this isn't the end of my story because you're writing a new story about me, and I'm in it. Thank you, Jesus, that you've rescued me. Thank you that you're saving me. And our lives are called to live like a prophetic symbol of life lived under God's blessing, to shine in the midst of everything that's going on. I think if we were to ask the New Testament writers... Well, they talked about a life following God and whether it would guarantee a rosy, cushy life where all their prayers were answered immediately. They'd they'd laugh at us, probably. Paul might do something slightly different to laughing, but they didn't have an easy life, most of them. But they saw God answer prayer and they saw God step in and they saw God working in the middle of all their circumstances. Why? Because they lived by faith in the ups and downs of life as they threw themselves onto God. There's a very intriguing passage that I've started reading. I'm going to finish it off. This is about the man born blind. It wasn't him that sinned, it wasn't his parents who sinned, and Jesus then goes on to say this, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now it's an unusual, th- the that that's used here. It's quite an unusual. it's a normal word, but used in a quite an unusual way in the Greek New Testament. And it doesn't go as far as to say that God has caused it, that it's God's fault, It doesn't go as far as to say that. It doesn't say it wasn't his fault, it wasn't his parents' fault. It was God's fault. It's not quite that clear. What it says is that it wasn't his fault, it wasn't his parents' fault, but God is now going to do his work in this man. In the midst of everything, circumstances have been brought to this point that God's work may now be displayed in this man. What it's saying is that this man... His life is now not defined by his blindness, but it's going to be defined by the fact that God is at work. That God is redeeming his broken creation. That God is able to redeem this man and save him and rescue him. That his life is going to be told, his life story is going to be told around the world as the man who met with God on that particular day. He's been redeemed. Thirdly, It's time to redefine our relationship with the rules. I've said that looking for who's responsible isn't helpful. And simply because often our circumstances don't fit within what we think the rules should be. If we talk about Hezekiah again, he found himself attacked by Sennacherib, king of Assyria. And this is no joke. Sennacherib has already conquered lands all around. He's got a a, a fearsome reputation. But life isn't out to get Hezekiah. God isn't out to get Hezekiah. His background isn't out to get Hezekiah. Sennacherib's out to get Hezekiah. He's the problem. He's the one who's at fault, but we're not playing that game. We're saying, because otherwise Hezekiah could just sit and go, what's the problem? He he needs to find a solution, not discover why things have happened the way they have, because it's just happened. Hezekiah's attacked by Sennacherib. Life isn't out to get him, and God is not the problem, but the answer. You know, it's very easy to try and look for rules. The man born blind, we find the disciples, the Pharisees, everybody looking at the man and saying, whose fault is it that this man is in the situation he's in? And it doesn't actually provide the right answer. It doesn't lead us to faith. It doesn't lead us to trusting in the one who has the answer. You know, I'm, I'm almost tired of watching the news at the moment. I don't know if you're finding the same. I've been writing this message over a couple of weeks. And I've written in my notes, the Munich shootings, the bomb in Kabul, which left 80 dead and hundreds injured. The lorry attack in Nice with 84 dead. Uh, and, And there's some stories that happened a few weeks ago that we've almost forgotten about now. The shootings in a nightclub in Orlando. The shooting of Joe Cox, MP. You see, life is moving on so fast and there's another disaster and another problem that we forget the one that happened three times ago. And they're recent and they're current. And we've moved on, but the families of those affected haven't. They're still living that story again and again, and they might be asking why. Was it it us? Was it them? Was it our background? Was it God? Was it why? And it's a fair question to ask. But it's not a helpful one. Because it doesn't give us an answer which leads us to faith. And the truth is this, that we can't guarantee... I can't issue you a guarantee today that if only we live our lives in a certain way we'll be untouched by tragedy. I can't. I can't give you a list of things to do that will guarantee that vending machine God will provide the life you want. I can't do it. Because we've seen Hezekiah, he played by the rules and still things went wrong. Some of those people that were affected were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. So what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about this? You see, fatalism isn't the answer. Giving in to our fate is not the answer. Living, trusting God is the only answer. Living, trusting the one who holds us, who's got us safe, who who will rescue us ultimately, even if we don't see a rescue today. He will do. He's working out his purposes in the world. And all that happens in amidst the pain and the suffering, God is at work to redeem and restore and rescue and build a new creation. Our hope is not in a system of rules of our making where obedience and religious duty equal an answer that's what we want every time. Jesus never called us to that kind of life. He called us to follow Him and to trust Him, to walk with Him, to hold on to Him, to get to know Him, to trust Him with everything we've got. Every resource we have to say, God, I'm trusting you with the bit I've got. If you give me more, I'll trust you with that. If I have less, I'll trust you with that. God, I'm trusting you with everything I have. Paul, when he's writing in the New Testament, wrote about his light and momentary troubles. Now, some of you, if you've read the story of Paul, are chuckling. Right now, because if you and I had lived his story, there is no way we would be describing our troubles as light and momentary. If we'd been as imprisoned as often, flogged as severely, nearly stoned to death as he had, shipwrecked, abandoned, hungry, in need, there is no way we would write that our troubles were light and momentary. And in no way am I diminishing anything I've gone through or you've gone through or are going through. But Paul had discovered the answer, which was not to look at the troubles, nor to try and find somebody to blame for what was going on, nor to try and understand why sometimes life doesn't play by the rules, but simply to say, God, I'm looking beyond them. I'm not ignoring them. I'm not a fool. I'm aware of what's happening. But right now, in the midst of everything that's going on, I'm choosing to fix my eyes on the prize. I'm fixing my eyes on you. Because I don't know why things are going as they are. There isn't always an answer to the question why. But there is always an answer on how to live. And that's to live trusting Jesus. Whoever or whatever might have been to blame for our current life situations is not the key question. The key question is this. How are we going to live in the light of God's love and his call to live for him and to trust him? Let's pray, shall we? Now, often I would go straight to a prayer, but I just want to pause for a moment. I know time has gone. I want to pause just to allow us some space. See, I'm very much aware that when we talk about life not playing by the rules, that's a nice, I've got a nice picture on the board and on the screen and it's nice and colorful. But actually the things we're talking about are quite, potentially quite painful. And it could take quite a lot of undoing to let go of a story which looks for somebody to blame. And my encouragement today is to trust Jesus above it all and in it all. And so I just want to pray very simply that God would enable us to do that. Father, we thank you that we can call you Father. Lord, we thank you for the fun we have. And the delight we have. And the joy we have. And we thank you that in the pain and the confusion and the difficulty and the questioning, you don't go away. Thank you that we've heard today, Lord, that you're ahead of us and behind us and either side of us. You are with us and above us. God, thank you that we've heard of your work in another nation of the world. In in amongst difficult, challenging circumstances, you are changing people's lives. And we say thank you. And Lord, today we don't want to ask, why not me? Why somewhere else? Why not here? We want to, Lord, just trust you. And we don't want to ask who's who's to blame. We just want to trust you today as a sign of our ongoing trust. We were singing earlier about our lives devoted to you. And I pray, Lord, today that every single one of us in this place, even if we don't have answers to the questions that we've been asking, might be able to live our life as an answer to the question, what, how will you live now? Will you follow me? And Lord, that we'll be able to live our lives as a testimony to trusting you and following you. God, I thank you that you don't abandon us. I thank you that you do provide. I thank you that you do heal, that you do raise the dead even today. Lord, we thank you that you deliver and you set free and rescue. And Lord, we thank you that you are at work powerfully. We thank you that you provide finance for those who are in desperate need. We thank you, Lord, that you can grow bone where there isn't any, that you can heal from cancer. Lord, we thank you that you can deliver and rescue, but our testimony will be this and our declaration will be this. Even if we do not yet see it, we will lift our eyes and praise the King. Amen.